it's a safe spot for um, shooting on film. Oh, dude, that's amazing. I, I can't believe you're still, you're still into film too. Oh man. I know you were, <laughs> because when everybody else was shooting on digital, you were still film. Yeah. I was like, who's this young cat shooting on film? I know. Well, it was the only real like. It still had like a cinematographic. It, to be honest with you, it's how I remembered films. So it was really kind of a violation when I started seeing digital. It didn't really like speak to me the way uh, film did. Did you learn filmmaking? Did they teach you film at school? Yeah, sort of like my film school, I had a really great bond with my instructor uh, who taught me, but they had like a 35 millimeter um, assignment that we had to do, but, but I don't really remember learning film from that okay. because I was so young, you know? Yeah. It was really when I started hustling and doing like music videos for like local acts and stuff like that, I would always hire, uh, or I would take my fee that I was charging and I would reinvest it into shooting it on film. Now, sometimes it, the project itself wouldn't even use the film but I would have the film footage and I'd be learning how to shoot on film yeah. from that so it was like I don't know I just invested in learning how to do it myself and I would I would rent cameras from like schools or was this up in Canada or was it yeah here? it was up in Canada I think there was like a school that had like a BL4 right on yeah had two of them exactly <laughs> It's like such a... But you, you uh, get what you get. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was such a workhorse. <laughs> yeah. But like all the other camera vendors were working with more modern camera bodies like the 435, 235, yeah. the LT and the ST and stuff like that. So those cameras were available to me. And so I would shoot like either an SR2, SR3, or a BL4. I think that's pretty much all the cameras that I had access to. And then I started working with Panavision and they started le letting me use, I think it was a Millennium or a G2. Ooh, heavy camera. Yeah, exactly, but beautiful. Yeah. Like I remember my first film, uh, my days, we shot it on a Gold 2, Panavision yeah. Gold 2. And like, I think the Jim Rotoboche here sent me a list of the films that camera had been on and it was like Star Wars and oh, God, you yeah. know what I mean? And <laughs> I was just like overwhelmed with like yeah. admiration yeah. and history yeah, yeah. and like all these interesting things. So that was kind of, I don't, I guess what I'm trying to say is it wasn't like a point of contention in my mind. It was just sort of like natural that I would, like to me, I would be shooting Film. film forever and I also kind of came up at the time of when digital first got 24p mm, yeah so it was like uh, f900 and these cameras weren't emulating cinema in the way that I had saw it okay. so it was kind of like yeah. just shoot film <laughs> yeah exactly like it made, yeah, yeah, it's gonna why? take way too much time exactly to post, right? exactly yeah, yeah. It, but also like there was a lab and I grew up, my neighbor growing up was a guy named Barry Chambers and he ran a lab in Vancouver Okay. Um, called Rainmaker, which was purchased by Deluxe. Okay. And that's how I got in contact. Deadwood? 
Yeah, well, Bev Wood worked with a colleague named Bob Bianco, who ran, he was the head of front-end operations at the lab. Okay. And when I first met Bob, um, he sort of gave me a tour of the Deluxe Lab, and then he really supported me and helped me kind of shoot projects that didn't really have the resources to shoot film or anything really yeah <laughs> you know some of these pro- some of these low budget projects don't have resources for anything yeah, yeah. so uh kind of still don't <laughs> yeah exactly so but bob would help me be able to like shoot stuff regardless of that fact yeah. and um then i think bev kind of moved to e-film at that time yeah but i I'm sensing, I'm not certain, but I think I met um, uh, David Hayes, and then David Hayes went to David Grove, and Grove went to Bev, and it was just sort of, but it all started with Barry Chambers in Vancouver, Canada, because when I immigrated here from Canada, I was like asking Barry, like, who who can I connect with? Yeah. That, you know, is you in LA? Yeah. And he introduced me to Bob. So. Okay, so then um, from that point, uh, let's say like from you brought that film love from Vancouver down here to L.A. Were you in L.A. first or were you in New York? I was in L.A. for seven years. Okay. And I moved to New York in 2016. I, I sort of, actually there was a story that I had where my mentor was a a guy, a cinematographer named Attila Saleh. And Attila, uh, he worked with Claremont cameras a lot. Mm. And he knew Denny Claremont. And when I moved here, I met with Denny. And Denny and I had lunch and he had said something to me along the lines like, you're going to get here and you're not going to work for two years. And then all of a sudden you're not going to be able to stop working. Nice. It took me four years. <laughs> and I felt like a failure kind of right at, I got right to that precipice where I was like questioning my, if I was going to be able to continue. And uh, I think the circumstances what, uh, that I was in was regarding the recession that had hit in 2008. Mm-hmm. And when I immigrated a year later, 2009, I was still captured in a suffering economic system yeah. that came from the recession. So there wasn't really opportunities for anyone my generation. And um, finally, I got to that point where I got my big break. And I haven't stopped working since, but it took about four years to get to that place. And then when I hit that point, I think it was 2014, I just started traveling a lot. I traveled all over the world on commercials, really, short films. And I would do a feature film every two years. Yeah, I hadn't seen you in a while. (laughs) Yeah, like I I sort of used the commercial, uh, um, the challenge of shooting uh, commercials and trying to make them great because mm. there's a lot going against you on those projects because there's interference from others, yeah. sp- specifically agencies and clients and sure. stuff like that. So you could come creative. in with a creative intent, yeah. but it, you'll be interfered with. So you don't necessarily have the same liberty that you would on a film. But those those same situations happen on films and with larger budgets when uh, the studio can interfere in the same way. So yeah. it's not 
I'm not saying that it's not like that, but now I primarily work with our tour directors, yeah. which they sort of have, um, their films are a reflection of their identity as a filmmaker. Like an artist, yeah. Exactly. True, so they're, pure they're, artists. Yeah. Exactly. Their yeah. films are an expression of their values. Yeah. You purposely did that. Did that. Uh, yeah, but it was sort of like, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like I was sitting down at the drawing board going like, oh, yeah, I'm do this. As, that's how I always thought. And I, it was really painful for me to work with people that interfered. Yeah. And, I, you know, it was so painful that I would express anger and frustration and I would rebel against those people. And a lot of the commercial work that I ended up getting celebrated for was things that I was rebelling on. So like they would say no anamorphic lenses, I'd bring anamorphic lenses and not tell anybody. And they'd be like, oh, it's so beautiful. How did you, how'd you do it, Chase? And yeah. I was like, it's because I didn't ask your fucking permission, you know? This so, is a safe space to talk about yeah, celluloid. Exactly, right exactly. How'd you get to so, make it beautiful? It's on celluloid. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't tell you. Exactly, exactly. Right. They like, don't know what they don't know until they see it. Yeah, like one of my friends, he's a production designer, uh, Patrick O'Keefe. He doesn't work in live action anymore. He does uh, movies like he did the Spider-Verse movies. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. and Patrick and I, we he's like one of my best buds, but we started working together when we were in our early 20s. So we were just doing like short films off Craigslist, and he was doing... Um, <laughs> He was doing the production design, but then pivoted it because he was an illustrator and painter. So he ended up finding, uh, you know, a lifestyle and making a living doing storyboards. And then he worked mm. for EA and designing video games. And then he eventually started working for Sony okay. doing those movies. Uh, but anyway, he had said to me at one point, um, an artist never has to ask permission. And I always like, for some reason that always echoed in me I, d I don't know if I hear it all the time but it was just like huh. for for me to go to even a director or a, a, an actor or a producer or a studio and tell them and ask them permission that this is my intent is sort of an absurd idea mm. I just need to go with my intuition yeah because the best thing that I can give somebody is like what exists inside me. Yeah, yeah my yeah. In, what I'm. They what, hire you to do something. Exactly, they like your taste. Exactly. Right? And I've, it's my taste, but I've also dedicated my life to developing skills in a certain way that are applied in a certain way. Mm -hmm. My, my subjective interpretation of what beautiful is, and everyone has a different perspective of that. But I get hired for mine. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm going around asking for permission or if I'm, um, um, if it's my need for acceptance from them that dictates my creative choice, then I'm basically doing things that anyone can do. Yeah, and that identity like a sort pusher. of, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Which is maybe a little bit of the craft, to be honest with you. like. Part of being a cinematographer and my my specific style of cinematography is camera operating and mm -hmm. that's actually a little bit more technical than i think um it's intuitive but it's also technical like i'm trying to uh, 
hit marks and I'm working with the director and actors and blocking and communicating exactly how to make a shot flow and choreograph and where the camera anchors and what the spectator's looking at and tracing and how that ed- works in editing and stuff like that. Yeah. So those things are a little bit more technical mm-hmm. um, and I think you can apply them in, uh, on every job in a kind of a more rigorous way, but then artistically you kind of go off in different things. So yeah. it's like there's two sides of the myself that are applied in it. Some's, some's artistic, which is my values, yeah. what I find is beautiful, but then there's also like, I'm making a table and how do I want the table to feel? Yeah. And what kind of wood am I gonna use? And this and that, it's yeah. much more um, but you, like a woodworker. But you also like shoot film, so you be, have you become a lot more efficient in terms of the coverage you do like you're more intentional as far as like the 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 sort of shots that you want yeah but that actually actually goes into my interpretation of beauty because i come from a family of musicians so i sort of Mm. see things in a musical way okay yeah exactly rhythmically and then also um uh, actually i would yeah, rhythmically is the right word, but I use the word uh, harmony. Oh, okay. So what I'll do is every scene and every shot, when you're capturing a human being, they're feeling an emotion. If a, a human's not feeling an emotion, they're dead. Mm, yeah. So that, to me, is a theme. So if you're doing a scene about two people falling in love, maybe it's exciting and enthusiastic, you know, there's those themes. So how do you create a metaphor and compose a shot that expresses that? Or maybe one character is desiring to connect and the other character is trying to protect themselves because maybe they've had some painful incidences from a vestige from the past that's still echoing inside inside of them. They don't want to connect or they're scared to. Yeah. So maybe I'm composing the shot and I do a clean single on the character that wants to connect and their eye line is very close to the lens mm-hmm. and you're really feeling a desire and you're connecting with the look in their eye and you're trying to, it's almost like a point of view. Yeah. But then in the reverse shot, what if I use negative space and I compose, I, I have the character on the right side of frame and they're looking to the right and they're feeling cornered mm. you know yeah. so psychology behind exactly that and to me that's harmony so i'm using images to cr- uh, create a harmonious rhythm with the theme yeah and the, and the story the that's yeah, and the exactly yeah. exactly brilliant yeah. so that is the to answer the question of coverage sort of where it comes from in your mind you start trying to connect these things and kind of suggest things to the spectator through their sensory yeah you're maximizing the frame exactly to tell that story exactly but a spectator is not going to intellectualize those things they're just going to get yeah Yeah. they're going to be what's the term Uh, suspension of disbelief like Mm. they're looking at a two-dimensional image but they're feeling like they're there it's a sensory experience they're like feeling uh, a bond with the character because maybe they, uh, their behavior uh, ripples um, uh, someone they knew in their childhood or their mother. Yeah. Or something like that. So they're bonding and they're f- figuring out this character. But there's all these other things that are happening with the sound and the image that are assisting that and creating harmony with it or juxtaposing it. Yeah. You can fuck with people big time. Yeah. That's like so. the, the reason why we kind of watch movies, right? To identify and yeah, just sort of like totally. to, to really feel this, the emotion of that we 
also exactly. have gone through, right? And that's sort of like even what, why I bring up the music um, aspect of it, because my family members were jazz musicians. Mm. And when you're listening to jazz, there's sometimes there's instances where there's a vocalist. My mom was a vocalist, so she would sing the lyrics. Mm -hmm. But then each artist on the, the stage during the set is doing a solo. So there's a, a piano player painting these keys and just going into this like mesmerizing solo, or it's like Miles Davis doing one yeah. of these solos. And it's just like, those aren't, um, cinema's in the, the very same vein like uh, dialogue would be the vocals mm. and sometimes like really great actors they're really interesting to watch because their voices are really interesting yeah you know like I really find uh, Michael Fassbender the way he delivers dialogue and the cadence and the rhythm of his voice is actually really hypnotic so there's a sensory element and composition involved in that and then there's other instances where I'm doing a solo. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's like an abstracted point of view of a character and, or a hallucination. And like, you know, there's all these great kind of motivations in films where you're trying to enter the psyche of the character. And so all of a sudden you're allowed to create these abstracted things where yeah. um, there is no dialogue and it's images only or maybe it's images and music and it's all these things so it's all like all these different characters that are in the band are playing their solos yeah. and the director is just sort of sculpting that and inspiring yeah. he's the conductor yeah. exactly yeah. and you're you're actually adding lighting you're adding like exactly. camera moves exactly uh, choosing the lens that makes the most impact when I'm trying to that. I'm trying to construct an illusion because you're really solution. tricking the spectator into something that's happening when it's really not. Yeah. And so you'd like them to sort of, sometimes that's like as simple as like creating an image that has depth. So then it feels real. Other times it's like concealing information. Like a lot of times I, uh, it doesn't fly with all the collaborators I work with because they speak different languages than I do in some instances. So then we're combining our virtues mm -hmm. but I really value concealing the story so in certain situations when I'm composing a shot and there's something really emotional happening I'll conceal the actor's face and maybe I'm shooting the back of their head as they're grieving yeah and so they're feeling uh, grief or shame and they rather than revealing the face or telling that part of the story through the portrait I'm doing the opposite yeah or maybe I'm using light in the same way, like I'm creating a silhouette. Yeah. Or I'm rather than a close up, I'm very wide. Yeah. When something really it's emotional isolated. is happening, yeah. I'm shooting it in a wide, so you can't really see it. Yeah. You're like feeling the, the room. Yeah. Or the geometric shapes that are around the room, or the silhouette of them really small in the frame, and that, so there's all these kind of ideas that you can play with to kind of tell a story. But it, it's a, you know, I'm sort of still developing my skills in that. I'm really like, uh, I've only I'm got one foot in the door, really, in my, where I'm learning and where I can go with that. I'd really like to keep doing films that are plotless. And what I mean by that is that they're almost entirely harnessed in character rather oh, than yeah. I love that. plot. Yeah. 
And those films are much more difficult to do. You need patience. Yeah, but they, be... they lean on acting oh, yeah. and performance where you don't really need that with a um, plot-driven film because the spectators, you're really just delivering plot in particular intervals. Yeah. Like, bad example, but a Marvel movie yeah. <laughs> is like, if you're going to... Throw it through drywall. Know, uh, he's a superhero. This is the bad guy. This is the love interest. And you're sort of making the inner yeah. roles of those things. And you just, the movie's constructed based off of those beats. Yeah. Whereas the plotless film does something similar, but it's using emotions rather than... I always said, things. like, emotions can be just as brutal as being, like, speared through the, you know, yeah, guts totally. with a rebar, you know? Totally. It's brutal sometimes. I see the movies yeah. so in the 70s. That goes to what my next question would be. Like, is there a movie that influenced you to want to be a filmmaker? Something that stands yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well... My uncle wanted to be a filmmaker. He was a musician, or is a musician, but he w wanted to be an editor. And so he always was introducing myself and my brother to films when we would visit his house in the summer and spend like two or three weeks with him. So, and I don't remember that period so well. Like I can't say there's like a particular film. And my mom was a musician, my dad's a, a a high school math teacher, math and science teacher. And uh, my mom had um, aspirations of us being artists, so she would have us like doing painting with her or um, my brother ended up doing more models and clay and stuff like that. But I was never as talented as my brother. He would always, I mean, he was just so gifted as a painter, and my stuff would look like <laughs> shit, really, compared sure. to his. So I would just always feel, um, I guess, shame, to be honest inadequate. with you. Yeah, yeah, inadequate. So I ended up, um, my brother and I would make little movies as kids. and Super 8? No. Camcorder? Camcorder, because my uncle had a VHS camera from the 80s. I think it was like, you know, that's when it came out. Like, of course. <laughs> VHS. So we would shoot the VHS camera and it would just be simple stuff like my brother and I uh, jumping on a trampoline, but then we would go in the VHS player and we'd play Crash it in reverse it. Yeah. and it would be like us jumping <laughs> and, and we'd just have the best time just watching ourselves doing something. Yeah. And uh, then later in life, I was getting to that point where I maybe had to choose what I wanted to pursue. And I think I was torn because my father was, uh, he, uh, he was a math and science teacher, but he also was a basketball coach. So I was, and I was gifted at basketball. So I always had this like, oh, I want to be a pro kind of thing. And I think it was even in the 90s, like the NBA released like a public service kind of campaign where it was like giving the actual statistics of who, what, how many kids actually get in the NBA. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. But I don't it was, remember it. It was like really discouraging. Yeah. And I remember seeing that be like, oh, I'm never going to be anything, <laughs> which I don't know if I, I guess it was good because I am where I am now. And yeah. Maybe I wouldn't have been. And I, you know, it would suck if you like, I feel sad 
Like, have you ever seen the film Hoop Dreams? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah like those kids yeah. having the crazy It's so interesting because it's like super them. rich uh, high school and then a super poor high school. And yeah, then their lives exactly. just sort of bounce back and exactly. forth. Exactly. But almost how that particular athletic system of sort of uses them as cannon fodder. Yeah. And uh, they end up uh, not necessarily living their dreams because maybe they had a child or... To be honest with you, a lot of these guys end up with injuries and they don't get to be yeah. pros. Um, and that would have been really shitty if I had that and I would probably suffer depression and stuff like that if yeah. I went down that road. Because, I mean, uh, if your dream has ended right then and there, yeah, exactly. what's, what's the next exactly. thing, right? And it's like you don't necessarily have total control of that either. Yeah. So, um, so did you go I, to film school? I did go to film school. Um did you like it? <laughs> uh, well, uh, when I look back at it now, um, I entered film school because I, my high school opened a film program at the maybe the second to last year. And I joined the film program because my brother and I loved working on the VHS and our uncle and all this, these reasons. And uh, it was just the time when Apple released the iMac and Final Cut Pro. So mm. it was like all of a sudden that software and hardware was affordable for high school. So maybe they bought like four computers and then they had a, a class of 15 students and we got to use those computers. And so we would make little movies. And then my mother was teaching music and there was a... Um, a local production designer who had his daughter uh, training under my mother and that introduction allowed us to meet and then he brought me out on set for my work experience um, uh, class or whatever uh, credit that I needed to graduate. So I got to go out on set a few times and he was a production designer. So I was introduced to what a cinematographer is, what a director's responsibilities are, a production designer, a producer. And I could really see the cinematographer had a, a type of responsibility that I was most interested in. And so then when I decided to go to film school, it was really the only option I had because I didn't have any other interests. Mm -hmm. And um, the high school that I worked or I went to, because it had a film program, it was gifted credits at that uh, university. So I was automatically inducted. Okay. I didn't have to apply. Okay. Uh, it's not like the education system in America at that time. I don't really know what Canada's system is like anymore, but like even British Columbia at the time had a tuition freeze. So like schools couldn't charge more. Like I, my film school for two years maximum, I think costs like $7,000 or $4,000, which is like a crazy number compared yeah. to what people have to do here. Yeah. It's like five credits here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, and so yeah. like then the, the kind of the bigger schools like NYU and stuff, it's like crazy prices. So, yeah. um, but Canada is a, a social democracy so it has like uh, government regulations to protect uh, education 
Yeah, protect education, but also consumers from predatory capitalists, so, mm. which yeah. is sort of what America is victimized by with its education system, because yeah. the prices are really it's just the it's insane. The economy in America runs went from production to finance, so it's really the economy is based off of how it can in, in duct debt onto people. Yeah. Then we start to be indebted exactly. to work all the time. Exactly. So it's like even a, even the house prices are so inflated that mm-hmm. it's you'll never designed, get out from under. Yeah, you know, you'll spo- never own that house. The idea is that you always are in debt here, and that's what runs America's economy. And if that didn't exist, then it would collapse. So it's sort of like the system, that, and that all happened in the '90s when um, production left, and they shipped those that uh, North America trade agreement shipped all the jobs to. China, Mexico, yeah. and other places. So anyway, yeah. I digress. <laughs> but Canada so has in, these great, these at the time, I don't know what it is now, because yeah. neoliberalism has changed all the economies. But when I was um, uh, young, I was gifted a grant from the government. So I got 3000 for free, and I went to the film school, and I was automatically uh, in. I didn't okay. have to, to Is it a four-year program, or, though? No, I just did one year. One year? General film studies. And then I applied the second year to a cinematography program. Okay. Specifically cinematography. Yeah, specifically cinematography because a lot of the friends that I made in the first year were interested in cinematography. And I guess I had always seen myself going into production design only because I had the most knowledge of that from my You have a lot of production design friends. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, they're the cinematographers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like... They can save you. <laughs> yeah, I rem- one of the things I learned is to really like figure out what the production design budget is on a project to know if it's going to be a shit show or not. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so did so at what what was the point of the the turning point of when you decided that film was going to be like celluloid was going to be the um, your yeah, your right. medium. Uh, okay, so maybe it was a film that I watched that sort of I had the epiphany. It was uh, Road to Perdition, oh, shot by Conrad Hall, yeah. and I'd seen that in theaters. And I remember asking my parents to come to a screening with me afterwards because I wanted to introduce them to that epiphany I had and explain <laughs> to them, like, this is what I want to do. Okay. And, you know, my... The guide for me was emulating or trying to find that sublimity that I felt when I watched the film. So then I was like, you know, that sort of was my guide, to be honest with you. That's why I ended up working with Panavision uh, and all these different vendors that I work with now. I've known them forever. Like I didn't, I've worked with you for 10 years now, you know, and that was through, you know. And so it's like that started and those events started that early and so now i'm uh celluloid is sort of like i guess it does come from road to perdition and just how i would i had felt that sense of sublimity and now i have other ways of articulating that to directors and producers because you sort of have to come up with a language to help them rationalize the decision yeah um because for me it's in intuition and it's a feeling yeah that it's right but uh not everyone can connect with that so you have to create like an idiom or a rational 
sentence or something like that to explain to them why it, it works. Yeah. A lot of times that goes to like character reasons or this or that. Sure. But really, I find uh, film does something, and it's uh, I would articulate it as a, it's less than perfect. Mm, yeah. And if there's any way better way to describe what it is to be a human being. It is less than perfect. Imperfection, yeah. Exactly. And though it's our guide in our society to, to model ourselves after perfection, yeah. really the the most, my sense of beauty is that imperfection. And those, um, Conrad even talked about that, the happy accident. Yeah. And those things happen with me in film. And it's sort of like, um, I can detect that. And it's a mystery to me. Uh, always a mystery to me. I don't know why it looks like that. I don't know why it 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 uh, hypnotizes me sometimes. Yeah. So, um, what was the fir- what was the first film you ever shot on film? What was the first thing that you ever shot on film? And what was your reaction after you got the dailies back? <laughs> uh, <laughs> shit, that's a good question. I think I shot a music video for my friend. Uh, actually, 16, Super 8. It was 16, or it might have been 35. I think it was 35. Wow, right out the gate. There's another cinematographer that is a friend of mine who is uh, really great. His name is Norm Lee, and he and I started out in Vancouver together, and I had hired him on a, com- a music video to camera operate. Oh, shit. Uh, camera operate, and... Um, Normally? Yeah, nor I. Music video? Yeah, so he. W- I had rented like a camera, like the BL4 or something, and we were shooting the, the music video on a DVX100 or something, like some 24P standard def camera. And um, Norm, I would basically work with Norm. I'd be like, okay, like. I'd do a shot like this or do this or do that and I would expose the 35 millimeter and he would operate it but then I would shoot also the digital okay <laughs> and then but that's what I was sort of telling you about how I learned how to shoot film right. that was sort of an example of how it would go down and um, I got the dailies back and you know I was my friend growing up and one of my mentors Barry Chambers he was the lab so I would send it to him and I would uh, eventually, I ended up working underneath, uh, or not working, but shadowing a colorist. I'm blanking on his name because I really haven't thought um, about him in a long time. But I, at Rainmaker, they were working on the TV show X Files. Oh, yeah, a little TV show. Exactly. Called and he was the dailies colorist on X Files. And so I was working at a. Uh, and lighting rental company called uh, William F. White's. Oh, yeah. And I had called in sick for like two weeks, being like, oh, I got an infection. It's my, like, I can't breathe or something like that. But really, I was lying. <laughs> and I was going to Rainmaker and shadowing under this colorist so wow. he could teach me color grading. Okay. And back then they had Da Vinci. Yeah. But Da Vinci wasn't owned by Black Magic. It was owned by a different company. And it was kind Thompson? of just a, yeah exactly exactly and it was what we know of di it hadn't gone through its birth process yet it was more telecine and was 
disparate. Remake. Exactly, yeah. and they would, all the footage would record to tape yep. for like uh, HD cam, SR, and stuff like that. Yeah, beta S cam. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So those it was back in those days. Um, but he had taught me little things about contrast and stuff like that, and what the he'd express the values of the cinematographer. And that show was controversial for its look, yeah. um, not amongst the public, but amongst studio executives and stuff like that, because it was dark and it was this, this and that. And I think there was a lot of battles to be fought to make it the way it was. So I got to like sort of witness that kind of thing and learn from that colorist and. So when I started shooting film myself, I had like a basic knowledge of um, what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. That's incredible. Yeah, That's but also great... when you're sort of like young and naive like that, I was, those things weren't really the stresses that I deal with now. Like, mm. um, like I didn't really. Maybe that enough times passed and my memory doesn't. Uh, it's not connected as much but um, I don't remember overthinking any of that stuff I remember it was just out of necessity because I was like okay I got some film I got a crew <laughs> yeah. we're shooting yeah, and we yeah. got this many hours exactly. and that's all yeah, you're yeah. really thinking about yeah. you're not really thinking about anything yeah. else so it was that kind of stuff but it's all like learning too it, it was basically my film school was like I just as an individual I never really learned through academic means, yeah. I learned through um, trying and Doing, failing. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so it was really up into the, and it, even to this day, it's sort of like a process of like failing, yeah. you know, trying things, experimenting, uh, taking the things that worked and taking out the things that didn't work. And it's sort of like, and the best kind of examples or the my aspirations moving forward is to work on films where there's enough space for that to happen mm, yeah. because like really making a film to me uh it's a lot different than making commercial like making a commercial you're sort of like um you're using a lot of material as reference to create the commercial it's like okay well, what's the greatest thing that came out now and the advertisers aren't really asking for that because their job is to make stuff cool quote yeah. unquote yeah. so it's all uh, do you think there's a um, there's sort of a trend to shoot on film to make it look cool I'd have, have to ask the, I have to ask the cinematographers about that but I would think so to be honest with you like I saw a big shift in shooting film when I did Lemonade yes yeah. it was like a whole young generation started using film where I bought my Airy Cam LT for uh, $8,000 oh, from a guy in <laughs> Amsterdam. And it hurts like my heart. a crazy price, <laughs> yeah. but that was when Kodak was like, now. I think uh, Fuji had discontinued their negative. And yeah. it was kind of like the industry was like, you know, movies like Hugo were happening. So it was like, we're moving into 3D. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah. like it was kind of doomsday for film. Yeah, and I, but I was just like, oh, this is a steal of a deal. <laughs> I Everyone's going to three D. You go straight to film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I love that uh, approach too. I feel like uh, one of my favorite filmmakers is a director named Michael Haneke, and he was, I think, quoted saying something along the lines of like. 
when you're living in a society where technological advances are sort of you're applying them in artistic realms kind of continuously and every the technological advancements are happening so frequency it loses its avant-gardeness so it's not avant-garde to chase the new technology anymore it's avant-garde to go in the the reverse so and do things that are timeless yeah and i really value that and i even love how like you know there's filmmakers like paul thomas anderson and christopher Mm. nolan and quentin tarantino who shoot film but their films have this sort of time timeless aspect to it especially paul yeah um where you know, like when I watched Phantom Thread, I felt like I was watching a film from the 70s. You yeah. Know, it was like, kind of like a, what's a good, I'm trying to think of the director it could be applied to, but you know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of more about his type of filmmaking so, harnesses behavior. Like a Richard and, Attenborough. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and I like that. Or the, kind even of thing. the um, uh, Merchant Ivory people. Like they, it's all exactly. behavior, right? Yeah. And class systems. And stuff exactly. Like that. And they're not trying, like, there's not some novel approach to the cinematography. It's like really uh, simple. Yeah. And to me, that's it's really elegant. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's really elegant. Like the it's mood synonymous. of it, the atmosphere. Simple and elegant are synonymous yeah. with each other. And I feel like oh, that's good. Yeah, it's like really that. difficult to do that because I think in some ways we're like always trying to. We think of complexity mm. in our own minds because we become neurotic as artists, <laughs> you know? And it's we can like, go down that road. <laughs> exactly. So we're kind of thinking about like, okay, what can I add to make the scene more interesting, do this yeah. and do that? And, yeah. But much. really it's more like the, the masters are subtracting mm. and they're taking things away. You and know, sometimes they have to work through stuff yeah. to get there. And that's sort of what I was trying to harp on a minute ago. Is like um, sometimes you need to work through things that aren't going to work, and to calibrate your eyes so that you can see the things that do work. But and when you, my hope is that as I'm working on more and more films, there's space for that. So it's like, like you know, even the movie Blonde had some of that element. Like we shot a five-hour film. Mm-hmm. Um, Are we going to release the five-hour cut? <laughs> no, but he—I don't think he ever intended to do it because he's because it's a plotless film. You don't need all those scenes, but he's like working through stuff. Mm. He's working through the characters, so he's adding scenes and doing this and that. And he's taking the elements that are working and subtracting the things that don't work. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like. Um, sort of filtered it after the fact of yeah. shooting all the performances and all that stuff. Exactly. And I, you know, I also heard stories about how Paul makes films and how they schedule in reshoots. Mm. And so even in the principle of photography, they're already planning to reshoot things. And that to me is like, oh, they're just, they're working out the film. Mm. They're creating the film and they're figuring it out as they go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like some... Yeah. Uh, the scripting element is one part of it, but yeah. then when you're making the film, it's sort of like you're rewriting the whole thing. Yeah. And you're trying to discover what it is as you're making it. Yeah. And sometimes you made a choice that doesn't really work anymore, so now you have to redo it. Yeah. And 
and you're discovering the film in that way and that to me is how you make something that's unique and long lasting because it has this uh, this humanness into it it's not just this preconception yeah. that's then applied it's not like you wrote a script you shoot the script we're done yeah exactly <laughs> you let it flow let exactly. it feel the film exactly. and then you watch and you go my intention was to get this or it went a different direction maybe yeah, and they well, go with that yeah, a lot of times you, the things that defied your expectations are the most interesting and they go beyond the limits of thinking because yeah. thinking is really a form of human limitation because thoughts can only generate and go through a process of memory mm. so you can only think of stuff that has been done Yeah, and so reference other things exactly yeah. so when you're on a set and you have a great actor and they're thinking in a different way than you're thinking and yeah. they show you what they're thinking it's going to be like uh, wow maybe I that's never, better yeah. I, wow I never thought of that Yeah, and that's like a really special feeling Yeah, and sometimes it's scary because <laughs> yeah. it reveals your own limits yeah and so if you get revealed that, then you can be like, oh, no, I didn't think about it. Like you could feel shame or right. guilt or, you know, inadequate in some way. But in a, in your, uh, but really what's going on is something so advanced that it's a real gift. Yeah. Most actors are very grateful that you even listen to them, though. If you're, you know, if yeah. they have an idea and they're like, oh, my God, this director's listening to me. Yeah, I, I listened to some interview with Michael Mann the other day. Yeah. And he was talking about heat and working with Al Pacino and how he said something along the lines that it was like, take five, six, and seven were always Al's takes. And mm. But I think he was saying that like Al would come in and he would experiment at first and it wasn't working. And, oh. re, and finally he would get in and then it was like he'd nail it in five, nail it in six nail it in seven and then on number eight he would try something crazy oh yeah, yeah yeah so it was like these actors have their own approaches to harness these emotions and themes that are going inside them and it's yeah. like i don't know anything about that job i just know how to have empathy for character and connect with the theme and what they're saying and feeling yeah so i can see that but they're working through those things too yeah. to create it in an authentic way because really it starts in your mind, but then has to go into like instincts. And what I mean like that, like an actor could read the script and be like, oh, this has happened, this has happened, but then they're gonna have their own ways of composing it. Whether it's through compassion, like maybe the character Empathy. says something yeah. in, in a compassionate way, mm -hmm. but it actually could also be said with fear and resentment towards somebody. And mm. it's the same dialogue, but expressed emotionally in a different way. It's a lot of choices that they exactly. have to, that's going on all exactly. in their head, right? But in some ways that has to come from their own experience and their own lives. Yeah. And that's when you get those great actors that come from method acting, mm -hmm. which is really the De Niro's and the Pacino's. Brando. And, uh, Brando yeah. and uh, Alan Bernstein and those yeah. people who came up in that era when um, acting transitioned from kind of more theatrical to real. Yeah. Kind of what, what yeah. I'm feeling. Instead of so. like a play, film yeah. play. Yeah. <laughs> Which was kind of like the classic, classic movies. Yeah. And that's hard for me to watch some of that. Yeah. 
But then there's other types of acting that Kubrick was able to harness, which isn't really, it's sort of a distortion. Of yeah, it's a distortion. <laughs> yeah. So it's because it's not really real, but yeah. they're behaving in a weird way yeah. that's not really the dialogue is strange, and there's a yeah. cadence, yeah. and it's like... But then the environment feels very real. Yeah, you can, exactly. You can almost smell the walls and stuff. It's but so then you have Jack Nicholson with his, like, he's locked in the freezer and <laughs> yeah, yeah, that down, angle. and he's smiling, yeah, and you're yeah. like, whoa, what yeah. the fuck That's a little theatrical. But it's also... It's theatrical, but it's, like, perverted. Yeah. You know, so it's not like what you would see yeah. in a theater. It's, like, it's interesting. Yeah. So I feel like uh, um, Stanley was kind of mixing a bunch of things together to create it. Yeah. Yeah, but that's just his own taste. I don't know if he was, like, doing it with his... I think he was just hunting for something that was I think unique, so, too, yeah. You know, yeah. It, when it happened, it happened. He didn't know how to articulate what he was looking for. He just, if he's, he goes, if I saw, if I see it, I'll like, you know, I'll know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's kind of wears down people, though, right? I would imagine, but it would also, it, I would imagine it, it depends who you're working with, because I think some people do their work in a particular mm. way, yeah. and they would make a great match for him. Like, I remember, I can't cite the story, but I even remember talking to John Turturro about he had met um, Scorsese for Eyes Wide Shut because Scorsese wanted him to be in it. And he said something, Turturro said something along the lines, like on the phone, uh, uh, Kubrick was like, you're exactly the type of actor that I'd like to work with. And I could see how... John Turturro is that kind of actor because <laughs> okay. he is that kind of real but also theatrical kind of like yeah. he can play like that's why he's in those Coen brothers sure the Coen brothers yeah you know <laughs> yeah Jesus <laughs> which is Coen when I see the Coen brothers where I feel like some of that gets harnessed from is uh, Orson Welles mm. um, so anyway yeah. I digress a bit but. The, the sim like I was thinking about the simplicity of things. Um, you know, there was a time, maybe like four or five years ago, where people would show their camera builds. There'd be all sorts of shit on it. Wires, cables, yeah. light rangers. I, I took to kind of camera shaming them and be like, yeah. get all that shit off of there. Totally. So at a certain point, is it just you, camera, film, battery? And yeah. then is that what we're, we're trying to get to? as bare bones as possible, shoot something elegant and simple. Yeah, I... Because um, you were in Ireland shooting a feature. How bare bones was that? It was... I was working with a pretty old school focus puller named Connor, and I basically did like bare bones mixed with like when you're working with a particular type of actors, you're trying to serve their needs. So you kind of kind of learn like, okay, I have to artificially light the scene to make it look natural because it's a day interior, but it's a long monologue and maybe they like Pacino, it takes them seven takes to get there. Well, I can't let the light fade or change during those shots because they might, the director might be editing cross cross coverage so a little bit of take two might be good and a little bit of take seven might be good so you need like these consistent things so you work out those scenes but then there's other stuff like oh, my apprentice and i ian 
Yeah, I know. He and, yeah, he and I traveled. We were shooting in Donegal, and we we just kept an AirCam LT without the video tap and nothing else, and carbon fiber sticks in the yes. trunk of our car. Yeah, and we would just go to these kind of remote areas and shoot them on our days off and every kind of we made it like our uh our task at every time low light was happening or we had a weather pattern that come was coming in that was abnormal we would be prepared to shoot and so in the living room the lt was always ready and built and it was just a lens yeah i think at first we had like a standard uh, Zeiss standard speed, which is like the smallest and lightest lens and it allowed us to move quickly, but then we were shooting the film on master primes. Mm -hmm. So we, I think, swapped to having like a 16 mil or 21 mil master prime and we just kept it simple like that. Yeah. But even the film that I finished recently, uh, Rio, uh, second camera assistant and I we in pre-production I kind of shoot continuously to help myself research the project and kind of come make those mistakes and learn and happy accidents so I went to a concert with a uh, there's a there's a cinematographer named Rian Igby Rigby sorry Ian Rigby oh I know him yeah yeah he's He's a good friend. The other Ian. Uh, yeah, the other Ian. <laughs> They're all named Ian. He's a good friend, and during COVID, I would stay at his house when I had to work in LA. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has a couple cameras. I think he has a Arican ST and mm -hmm. a 235 and an Atten um, Minima, mm -hmm. A Minima. The tiny 16. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, I had asked, because the I hadn't committed to the film at this time. There was a concert happening. They had just invited me to meet the director and the producers and sort of, you know, it was the first time I was meeting them and they were considering me. And I don't even think the project had been fully financed or even fully written. So it wasn't, it may have happened or may not have happened, but it, they invited me to a concert and I, I was like, hey, I want to shoot the concert. And they got me like a, press badge so I could go behind the scenes and go anywhere and I asked Ian for his 235 and I think I went on Instagram and asked people for like a Harry Cam or sorry a Zeiss standard speed set of lenses that mm, could okay. fit in the little case. And, for a concert. Yeah. yeah and Rio and I just walked around with a, she had a backpack on with a mag <laughs> and held some lenses and I ran around pulling my own focus on the 235 and that's sort of like Running all down. that footage is so beautiful. Yeah. And I shot for two the nights. Energy. There's so yeah, much energy. Exactly. Yeah. And everything that it had so much cinematic elements that exist intrinsically because the, it's a concert. And yeah. so they're playing with light. The, lights, and yeah. the light is designed to be in harmony with the music and it's doing moving and doing all these things. And it was just yeah. very visual. And then you have all these people, so I'm like sneaking yeah. portraits of them yeah. and uh, filming the shadows that are cast from their body yeah. or silhouettes of, pe of people against the smoke that's coming out of the smoke machine. And I'm yeah. just like, that's cool. I, I'm just, I'm not planning anything. I'm just like making these, con seeing things that I see these connections and shooting, shooting them, visual connections. Yeah. Or maybe I see a scene and I compose it in an interesting way. I'm just being like very experimental. 
and then I, I'll sit down with Benny and look at that footage. Yeah. And uh, those choices that I was making in that kind of woodshedding experience, I then apply to the film. Yeah. Or I take the, mo the elements that are, it's research, it's basically research. Yeah, it's kind of how Tony Scott used to take a camera yeah. out and just hand crank it and just exactly. say, for a commercial, but then he put it in his movies. Totally. Yeah. But in, in music's terms, it's called rehearsing. Oh, yeah. So, like, my mom would always be rehearsing in the, the living room. Yeah. She had, we had a grand piano and um, PA system, and I could just hear her as I was doing my homeworks, yeah. trying to work through a song and trying to make sure that every note was right. And if she didn't hit a note, I could hear her screaming at herself. Wow. You know, so I sort of am like, oh, that's the way that you create. Mm. And so I try to do the same thing. And even though there's like, there's this part of the filmmaking process that's like sitting in an office and talking a bunch of shit with people. Yeah. Uh, the real stuff is like going out there and applying it. And then you kind of get to a place where it's a bit more muscle memory. And you yeah. like, even that creative creativity and how you apply creativity is muscle memory. Um, real quick before we run out of time yeah. what is the best advice you want to give somebody who's starting out wanting to shoot on celluloid <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I'm going to give you like kind of a simple answer to that it, because it's based off of my experience, to be honest with you. Perfect. It has a little bit more to do with the bonds that you're making. And that's sort of led to even our connection. I really went and made those bonds with Panavision and I was allowed to shoot with Panavision and Deluxe and Rainmaker as a lab and uh, now Company 3 slash E-Film and um, don't be afraid to build those bonds as soon as you get out of high school and I've never had any one of those individuals ever say no to me mm. though I was always scared they always wanted to help and I just let them know that what I was trying to do was theirs as much as it was mine and the projects that I was doing and they always helped me and I still work with those same people today and it is that kind of support that gives you access and helps you learn like even my connection to Bev um, like even how I uh, try to, when I'm doing kind of more testing and camera tests and trying to come up with a uh, kind of a flavor or patina to the look and the grain and whether I'm pushing or pulling or underexposing or what lenses and all that, all that stuff I learned from her, to be honest with you. But it was really like I was asking her a question and she responded with a sentence. Mm. You know what I mean? It just made sense. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Right. So yeah. I, I guess what so I'm reach out to people. Yeah, reach it. Don't be scared to reach out to people and like 
you know, I feel uh, just going on. Like, I think there's other outlets to kind of get gear and stuff now. Mm-hmm. Like you can go on these, like you can rent them from some, um, you know, gear sharing kind of websites. Yeah, sure, right. yeah exactly. And I'm not the discouraging that. I think they're useful in certain situations. But what I'm trying to express is like in my own life, you know, I'm using the term Panavision, uh, but it's really Jim Rodebush, mm-hmm. and it's really Benny Estrada, yeah. and it's really Beverly Wood, and it's really you. And so reaching out to people, because and uh, what I was wanting to also express that, you know, I've used terms like Panavision and Company 3 and stuff like that, but those are actually like nameless, faceless, bureaucratic systems, like really (laughs) what you want to do. Corporations. Yeah, really what it is, is Jim Rodebush. He happens to work at Panavision. Mm. Beverly Wood, she happened to work at Deluxe slash Ephraim. And you, Mm. and Benny Estrada, and you know, Jimmy Ward, my focus puller, and Cody Jacobs, my gaffer, Joey DeAnda and Sean Devine and Ray Garcia and like you know these these are the people. It's yeah. human beings, and if you when you're starting out, you're gonna you're gonna have uh, some uh, peers that you're maybe gonna come out on the scene with, and you can help each other. But it's these elders that really are gonna pass down some knowledge on you and. Uh, this kind of moment of you coming up and these, you know, these bright eyes that you might have, like it's take that time to really connect with those people and like ask them questions and yeah. don't be scared, scared about doing it. Should they, <clears throat> should they buy a film camera? I wouldn't say no if the price was right. But I wouldn't, <laughs> like, like if it's eight thousand for an LT, yes. Yeah, take it. yeah. But it like if it's the same price as film school, then I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Might as well invest in that rather than film school. Yeah, it's like, but but I I guess what I mean is like, that owning your own system isn't really going to give you also everything like. When I shot my first film on a Panavision Gold 2, it's an older camera, it's probably not used so often anymore. And at the time, the XL2 was out and the LT was out. But I was able to do something that, the camera was never stopped me from doing. All it did was support my creative intentions. So like, don't get obsessed with the technology and these gears and the gear and stuff like that, just like, Go to these, go to Panavision, they'll help you. Mm-hmm. Ask them for help. They're gonna have lenses that are gonna be unique. And yeah, they, they might give you stuff that's, there's a lot of equipment that's reserved for uh, productions that are higher. Yeah, uh, no C or E lenses. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Lenses. But those are also irreplaceable, so they're, and they can't fabricate them anymore. So it's like, 
you know, you can't put like a fucking C series anamorphic on a drone. You know? <laughs> like, so it's fine. But what I'm saying is like, uh, there's, they have so much unique stuff that you can learn from them. And I'm still yeah. like learning every day here and meet working with Dan. Like I work a lot with Dan Sasaki here. Yeah. And uh, he's, you know, incredible. he's incredible. Yeah. He's an artist and he, he has a vision for glass that's really unique. And where on the other side, it's like people in lab coats with white gloves on calibrating lenses whereas with Dan it's like he's got grease up to his elbows and he's like you know taking something apart and shifting an element around and doing weird things that create these uh, imperfections that are beautiful another DP told me that uh, Dan's secret is and he told this other DP he goes um, lenses can't going back to what we're saying let lenses have one slightly imperfection to them. Mm, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And make he, them one slightly imperfection. Yeah. To make them unique. Exactly. And he has like a vast uh, amount of knowledge. Oh, God. So even just like great conversation with him could elucidate a lot of possibilities to any person, you know. And I think we're all going to be kind of lame in at first, but as we grow, we're be able to um, find uh, or discover new techniques that will help articulate the psychological experience of a character and that's really what it's about you feel like young people should um, at least at one point in their life shoot on celluloid oh yeah yeah I don't know if uh, I get them hooked yeah I don't know if <laughs> it's like take my camera take some film go shoot yeah, it's hard for me to see it from the perspective of a young person because I started young shooting on film mm -hmm. and I don't know exactly their experience because I don't know that many people that are just starting out. But they're so curious. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Exactly. And they can see sort of the one of the great things about shooting on film is that it has like a it challenges you in a particular way. And I think that uh, as a creative person, challenge and creativity are actually the same thing. Mm. And so uh, it helps me access that. Whereas when I've shot on video, I sort of, uh, I don't, I, I guess I get caught in my head in a way that I don't do. I go into a neurotic phase because I'm judging my images. Mm. Whereas I don't judge them in a way when I don't have the monitor when I'm looking through an optical viewfinder mm. and I'm seeing a scene through my eyes and I'm getting an idea for, you know, I'm framing shots through a viewfinder rather than running around with an easy rig. It's kind of like it uh, builds these kind of connections in a different way and I like that. And it's a, yeah, it's different. It's hard, I haven't really come to um, full, uh, understanding of what goes on exactly but I, I think anyone that's young should experiment i like seeing i, I like seeing their reaction when they get their dailies mm. it's so fulfilling to watch yeah like it's kind of like I feel, <laughs> it's kind of sad but like i get my joy watching them get excited about the 
film aspect yeah. of it because they shoot it they don't get to see it for a while then they see it they're like oh my god this is exactly what i well that's the same kind of thing of like that it goes beyond the limits of your thoughts too so it's like defying your expectations mm, and instantly yeah. it's going to be inspirational because it's like or scary yeah depending on who you are to me it was always inspirational so and it fueled my enthusiasm and that energy that emotion of enthusiasm is really what makes movies and makes art so you need to keep feeding that and you can't fake it yeah it's either happening or it's not happening so it's like uh if film is the thing that's helping you get there because of the, the uh, system mm-hmm. then go for it well i notice it. i also notice a uh, fight for it for sure I also notice a lot of people you also reach out to or they reach out to you uh, know that you shoot on film. Like uh, I just met Kalia and then I met Tanisha and I met, um, uh, well, I know Ian. Yeah. And everybody you touch is a very like deep celluloid mentality mm. now. I think you inspire that in them too. Oh, that's that's cool. kind of strange. Like, you know, they, yeah. they just naturally gravitated towards that sort of passing on the DNA, you know, yeah, like, exactly. but then that in me, there's a little bit of Conrad Hall. Mm, yeah. I remember having this conversation even with Andrew Dominic, cause I had seen assassination of Jesse James many, many times. And I was sort of expressing to him that I thought it was, there was irony in the fact that he had requested me to shoot the film because I'd seen it at an age that my, mind was still so much plastic and I was molding it into uh, what I am now and the values I have now are influenced by that film Mm. so I was like it's almost like you know your your DNA is in me now you're choosing me to shoot your film and I thought that was really beautiful yeah so I think that sort of happens amongst all of us yeah you know we see things in others and we aspire and we get um, we sort of yearn for it after that. And you can see these particular values or techniques or elements of the, uh, an individual's identity being expressed. So you sort of like that uh, stimulates your own curiosity. You know? yeah. It's really integrity, to be honest with you. Yeah. It has a lot to do with artistic integrity. Yeah. And I think we all desire it, and it's actually really difficult to attain. Do you feel that in Hollywood at all? What? Um, integrity in, in the art, artistic integrity in terms of the cinema that's being released now. Uh, if it's not A24. Well, it, it would be hard for me to like, you'd have to give me like an individual as an example. Mm-hmm. Rather, like I can't, the system is based off of economics. So yeah. it's not, but that's not my value system personally. Like I don't, if something made money, I don't see it as a success. It could be the, yeah. You know, I, I, it's I'm like an way. emotional thing I'm the same for me. Yeah. So, but America's value system is structured in how much money you make. Uh, in exactly, the box office, exactly. Yeah. It's and sort that's of a shame. Of these, those extrinsic rewards are sort of like status, money, and yeah. that kind of stuff. So it's sort of like meaningless to me. So I don't really like think about it too much. Yeah. Whereas. Uh, someone an individual with artistic integrity you can it's like a mag it it's almost like a magnet it sucks me in Mm. um and once i think you gravitate towards each other too Mm. yeah so absolutely uh, 
you can sense that these people have like integrity even like uh, my friend Rio who I was talking about she has an incredible amount of integrity and maybe we're drawn to each other because we work and we work together because of that you know and but I'm not even talking about her artistic integrity I'm talking about just her integrity as a, as a human being yeah. like mm -hmm. the thing she stands up for the things that mm -hmm. she values yeah and, that's hard to uh, that's actually harder to find these days than people realize yeah in a way because they'll, be like, like, they'll fold it you know yeah it takes a lot of courage because you also have to be willing to not be accepted by others yes so it's like in some cases that's really painful so you have to really accept yourself at first to be honest with you yeah and not have fear because if you love yourself you really don't necessarily need love from others yes like if you're if that need what i'm trying to yeah. say is like not you love yourself Validation. but that need for love yeah. if you can fulfill it yourself yeah and not need it dependent on other people yeah then that gives you like a form Free, of freedom, freedom that is like yeah. way different and then your art excels exactly. yeah Exactly. You have no fear to do these things anymore. Exactly. But that to me really comes off of a need too. It's like like I had said earlier, a lot of the things that choices I made in my life was because it was too painful for me not to do it the way that I needed to do it. Mm -hmm. So it's kinda like I got to where I am based off of my repulsion to a certain amount <laughs> yeah. of pain. Yeah, going you know? against that. Yeah. And I think that's the same for a lot of people who exceed really well in their life because it's almost too excruciating for them not to do it in a particular, with their values, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Their conscience eats at them and they can't. Yeah, They have exactly. to do it the way they have to do it. It could be, like, there's a lot of different ways that can generate. It could be how they judge themselves or it could just be like... Uh, like confusion to pain to yeah. be honest with you like I get confused a lot sometimes some uh, we're talking about a scene and it's going down like this and, the, and I, my need for authenticity isn't being met so I'm mm. like as it's yeah, starting yeah. to generate I'm just feeling confused and I'll start saying things like to the director where it's like I don't believe it yeah you know I don't believe it yeah and then we have that means I don't it, it's sad for me to say that because I don't have the answer mm. But I'm confronting, I'm drawing a line in the sand and saying like, okay, we got to, uh, let's work together. Or do you, or maybe even hearing my, my honest expression of I don't believe it, maybe they hear it as like, okay, how can we make it better? Mm, yeah. And then it becomes a free exchange yeah. of ideas. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's try this. Yeah. I don't know if this is working. Yeah. This will work. I don't know if this is the answer, but let's try it. Yeah. And then eventually you start getting better and better and better and better. And I'm talking yeah. about that could be just like one shot. Yeah. You come into a scene with a particular idea, you anchor onto that idea, you assume it's not gonna work at first, and then just keep working it until it starts to work. Yeah. And, and then, then you get there. That's why you have a relationship with uh, with a director for decades, I guess. Like yeah. you know, that's how well, it's like a marriage. And stuff yeah, it's like definitely that. a marriage. Yeah, exactly. So you're gonna end up like having <laughs> yeah. quarrels and things like that, but you sort of like it's still love. Respect each other. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. It's still respect and love yeah. and it's sort of like uh, yeah, you can common ground. Yeah. But you, what really what it is is that you know that 
that individual's giving it their all and you're giving it their all and yeah. it's all for, for the final purpose. outcome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And even if they mean well. You mean yeah, well. exactly. Like if a director and I get in a fight about something and we have different views on it, at least I'll know they're fighting for something. They're fighting yeah. for it and they really believe and there's yeah. integrity behind it. Yeah. And they'll know the same for me. Yeah. And at the end of the day maybe there was a moment that was painful, but like when we look at we what we accomplished together, there's only love. So mm. it's sort of like we gave the best of each other. Yeah. And so, but sometimes you need to like. Sometimes in when you have love, it, there's moments where you're killing it and you're destroying it and you're building it back up and nurturing it over again, and then it dies. <laughs> it's like life in lot. general, I think. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. <laughs> It's just even like how a plant needs water, and then sometimes you forget the to leaves leave. fall off. Yeah, the leaf starts to die, or maybe it doesn't die; it gets sick, and then you heal it again through nourishment. And it's like a relationship can be like that with a director, where it's like, at first I'm really inspired by everything they say, and then I've heard the same thing over and over again, and then I didn't like what we did the other day. Yeah. So now I don't <laughs> trust them. And I, don't, I <laughs> yeah, see them as stuff. a threat. Yeah, yeah. And then the next day he brings it his all, and it's like now we're working together again, and it's like yeah. you kind of go through these things, and the film ends up being like this thing. Yeah. I might have to bounce. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry to keep you no, off. No, but no, no. I have dude, to. Dude, thanks for letting me. Thank you so much for letting me ambush you on this Elliot Ashram. Yeah, no, it was great so meeting funny. you. Yeah, I totally knew you were at Woodland Hills. I was like, Woodland Hills? Wait a minute. <laughs> Where could it be? Well, thanks a lot, Chase. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, appreciate no your problem. time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Let's grab a beer sometime. Oh, dude, cigars, yeah. beer. Oh, I oh, don't yeah. drink anymore, but cigars for sure. Yeah, I don't really drink anymore. Yeah. Cigars sound good to me. Right on, man. Yeah. Thanks. All right, cool. Bye. Peace out. <laughs>